1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So... Head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more, to subscribe, and while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice! He's gonna break! Red rum! Red rum! Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I'm Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today we welcome writer, producer, and director Lindsay Beer to the show. She spent time toiling in the writer's rooms for all your favorite big tentpole titles and recently got to jump into the Stephen King territory big time with her prequel Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, which explores the origins of the evil in Ludlow, Maine, and stars Jackson White, David Duchovny, Natalie Allen Lind, Henry Thomas, Isabella Starr LeBlanc, and Pam motherfucking Greer, for that matter. Yes. Uh, yes, you can wa- you can watch Pet Cemetery Bloodlines now on Paramount Plus, and it will be released on Blu-ray December nineteenth. She's here to talk a little bit about that, as well as her chosen topic, my all-time favorite Stephen King story, it. Uh, welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thank you so much. Yeah. So very excited to be talking to you again uh, today. For anyone that's listening, we we hosted the uh, Pet Cemetery Bloodlines premiere at uh, Fantastic Fest this year, which was. Uh, a lot of fun. Some uh, masked children came in banging drums. It was very creepy. Which they uh, didn't tell us about, by the way. So, <laughs> yeah. so there, there was one note <laughs> right when we go, we got up, and the way these these things usually goes, like we they ask us to like do an intro, or you know, and then we're like, oh, and then you'll do the Q and A in the intro. We're like, oh, we can you know vamp for a little bit and then bring Lindsay up to to say welcome to the movie or whatnot. And like no shit, like as we were up on stage, the publicist like kind of leans and goes, "There's gonna be something that happens," and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> we had no idea. It's an ominous the, uh, thing to say. The the masked uh, uh, drum procession was was coming through the theater. I'm, I'm glad yeah. that it ended as a surprise. I thought you guys did an amazing job hosting that, so I was really excited to talk to you today. Oh, oh thank awesome! You. Thank you for saying so. You we, that was a that was a really cool screening. It's always uh, special to to host stuff at fantastic fest mm. we're, we're big fans of that big fans of that festival and somehow for like three years running they have found a stephen king related thing for us to be involved with so <laughs> it's uh I, i'm hoping i don't know they... if they'll pull it off again for four years in a row but uh <laughs> we'll be there if they if they ask fuck yeah um i wanted to tell you that at that screening um they had like little kind of like swag bags out mm-hmm. at all the seats right and the pet cemetery bloodlines branded blanket that was in there mm-hmm. yeah. is my dog's favorite blanket <laughs> bar not it's so he fun loves it. oh, it's so oh my god i've heard so many people say like it's my child or my dog or my somebody's favorite blanket it, it's such a soft blanket it, it's I ha- a fan favorite 
I am so glad you brought that up, Scott, because if you didn't, I was going to. My uh, girlfriend's dog is currently nested in that blanket on the couch next to me right now. I believe it. The second that we brought that we brought that home, like no shit that night, that night of the screening, I pull out the blanket. I'm like, oh, check this out. It's like, a you know, I'm telling, telling my girlfriend, I'm like, oh, it's a nice, nice blanket. And like the dog instantly claimed it. And we so it became not our blanket uh, the second that it came home. Well, it's very important for us to give back to the pet community. At <laughs> After all you did to those animals? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> this kind of tangentially related, but I was talking to uh, Phil Mobile Jr., who's the editor-in-chief at Fangoria Magazine uh, before this recording. And he wanted me to tell you on kind of a related note that the like press drop that went out for Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, you know, when they like, you know, send the press you know, a couple of like fun things in a box uh, was, quote, exceptional <laughs> and um, apparently included. Uh, let's see here. Uh, a blanket. Same one we got a hat, a dog candle, a USB electric lighter and a little shovel and had little <laughs> paper birds wound up with rubber bands that flew out of the box when you opened it. Here's my question about this. Yes. As a director, do you have any? And I've always wanted to ask somebody. But almost, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any yes. input on yeah. what goes in the box? Yeah. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. We had meetings about it, and uh, it was, you know, I I think there there are directors I think who aren't in very interested in what happening happens on the marketing side, but I think it's uh, so important how you market a movie and how you engage with fans and and people who are who are viewing the movie. So yes, I was very engaged in those conversations. That's, that's really interesting because all this time I assumed it was in just entirely the marketing department because I know I've received like those kind of things before. And then I'll be talking to a filmmaker afterwards and I'll say, yeah, that thing that God, what's like, I got a, like a cell phone battery, like an extra battery pack in one of those things once. And I uh -huh. told the filmmaker like two years later, like, you know, when your movie came out, I got a little like cell phone charger thing that I still use to this day. It's like branded with your movie on it. <laughs> and he's like, I had no idea that they did that. So mm -hmm. I was kind of under the impression that that you didn't have any input. That's kind of fun. Yeah, no, I did have input. I, I'm sure it, it's different studio to studio and also just filmmaker to filmmaker in terms of their own level of interest. But um, yeah, the I mean, designing out the marketing campaign and and some of the, the extra perks was a fun thing to collaborate with Paramount on for mm -hmm. sure. Right on. Uh, it, 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 on that note, there was uh, at the screening there were uh, Pet Cemetery branded uh, cookies. Yes, and and yes. the conversation between everybody, like everybody files in, and there's the goodie bag on the seat, and then there's like cookies that like giant cookies that were that had like uh, you know tombstone you know frostings on it like uh, all these different and they were they were like three or four different designs and and everybody on my row was like are these dog cookies or human cookies <laughs> <laughs> but it's fantastic fest so we eat anything that, that they put on the table so right. so uh, it would have been really funny but that for for uh, bloodlines too i'm just saying uh, put some dog cookies out next time and and watch what happens you'll you'll see a bunch of uh uh, grown-ups <laughs> you've uh you've got some really awesome people in this in this movie mm -hmm. uh, including henry thomas and, and david Duchovny and samantha mathis but the the person i really want to talk to you about is is pam greer oh, like yeah. uh, i i have never met pam greer uh i understand she's just a force of nature and i'm i'm curious if you can tell us uh 
I don't know. Tell us a, if you've got a fun Pam Greer story from the making of this movie. I mean, everything was a fun Pam Greer story. She's just <laughs> so much energy. And, you know, it, just the fact that she effortlessly carries a double barrel shotgun. And it's, it's, <laughs> no, it's no big deal for her. Well, I mean, she's I mean, coffee. Of course, she's good with the double barrel shotgun. Come on now. She, she had more than a few people in headlocks on the set. She <laughs> is a hilarious person. And she has so many stories, including the fact that she was on the set of the 89 Mary Lambert Pet Cemetery because she was friends with Mary from like a like a women in Hollywood group. No shit. Uh, huh. Yeah, which was a really, really fun anecdote. I love that it was kind of full circle for her. But, you know, when I was when I wrote that line, um, you know, I I killed the Baderman's fucking dog. That was the first <laughs> thing that, that was the first time I thought, oh, my God, Pam Greer would be amazing for this. And I I, uh, of course, never imagined that she would actually say yes at least so quickly and and it turned out she's a big stephen king fan and really yeah she's a huge okay, can you put in a good word we, we definitely <laughs> yeah. want to have her on the show there we go yeah no she is and she loves the shining in particular and mm. and she also she lives on a ranch she grew up on a ranch so and she really kind of related to the Ludlow life and mentality. And she had so many ideas and like kind of just small little texture things about her character. And she had so many ideas in our first meeting that I asked production if we could do. And they're like, no, we can't. can't." That's like (laughs) three days of like Pam Greer searching for worms in her front yard. Uh, (laughs) uh, She just, she's just, she's just amazing. It's gotta be such a relief for you as a, as a director, when you actually cast somebody and they're super engaged and it's not well, just like, yeah, I'll get to set. I'll, I'll be professional. I'll get to set on time. I'll know my lines, but like, you know, it's got, it's got to be such a weight off your shoulders going, okay, I don't have to worry about this, this person. This person's not, I'm not going to have to draw <laughs> something out. Like they're, they're engaged already. Oh yeah. It's such a relief. And it's also just so inspiring. Um, I, I love when people are passionate about what they do. That gets me excited. I really feed off that. And, and so when you find somebody who's really digging in on their own and, and, and kind of, you know, making what, what you already created better, that's the dream. Hmm. So was this something that you went to Paramount and pitched or something that they were taking pitches on and, and you like, how did this come together? This came together because I was looking for something to direct. And my agent had set up um, some producer meetings with people that I had worked with before and had a good relationship with. And uh, one of those people was Mark Baradian, who's a producer on this. And we had worked together on the Transformers franchise. And they had a script from Jeff Bueller. And they were looking for a director and also a rewrite. And they were talking to a few people. So it was it was a pitch process of, right. uh, you know, going against some other some other people who were up for directing, but ultimately, ultimately ended up with a lot of rewriting. But um, I think Jeff's pillars remain in the story and, mm-hmm. and were a really intriguing start in terms of uh, looking at this through the eyes of a Timmy Baderman story, which I thought was so smart. And I loved that chapter from the book, you know, mm-hmm. it's not even really a chapter. It's like three pages, um, but it's so, me- it's so memorable. It feels like a chapter. And then just the fact that in the book, the, the, um, the book says that it's because of 
Judd Crandall's encounter with Timmy Baderman as a young man and helping kill Timmy and kind of put down that evil as a young man. That's why the evil kind of targets Judd his whole life and then finally mm. gets him when he's a little bit more feeble minded um, in, in his eldest years. Uh, and, and that's something that isn't really explored before in in, in film form. And there are right. so many things like that in the novel where there's like a few sentences that say so much, but aren't kind of, um, uh, you really have to pay attention to, to, to every sentence to get it all. Right. And, and so really drawing out those things and those suggestions and trying to um, uh, build out the lore that it, it felt like, Stephen King was pointing to mm. without sometimes overtly saying it or or saying it but not expanding on it. Right. There's a cursed feeling to the original story, the original novel. There's there there's something that that's sticky about it. You know, it, it not just uh the horror and the dread that you feel while reading it, but like also within the story itself, you know, and so I I like that kind of one of the cornerstones of of um, your story uh, in Bloodlines is that, you know, that it kind of becomes, you know, a, a bit of a curse for, for people. Like the, it's a responsibility at a certain point to kind of safeguard against what's happening. Um, and you also, without spoiling too much, you know, you, you get that feeling with also a little bit of the release of, you know, there at least somebody gets to break free of Ludlow, right? And some somebody get gets to get out and live a happy life. That somebody is not Judd Crandall, uh, which isn't a spoiler to anybody who's actually exactly. seen or read any uh, of the, uh, you know, the Stephen King stuff. But uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I like that, that that was one of the predominant flavors um, in your in your story. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah, that was something that I brought to the rewrite. And um, I, I I just felt like the, the concept of generational secrets and trauma and sin and uh, fathers and sons are obviously such a big theme in the original novel and, mm. and kind of bringing that back to forefathers and, you know, what your father's father or father's father's done. And just the notion that there have been generations of Crandall's sitting on that porch kind of keeping guard. <laughs> There, the, yeah. the book ends with saying that Judd is the guardian of the woods, which, uh, you know, suggests kind of a mantle there that hasn't mm-hmm. really been explored in films. And that that inspired right. me a lot in terms of that that curse and that responsibility. Right. This uh, this movie also puts you in rarefied air in that. And we've we've talked about it. we devoted an entire episode of the show to this once, but. Um, very, very few Stephen King adaptations have been directed by women. Like you can count them on one hand and you're, we, we recorded that episode before, you know, your, your movie came along, but I'm, I'm curious how you feel about that. I'm curious if you have any insight as to why, um, more women aren't getting a shot to, to direct these movies. Do you think they're chasing them and not getting the jobs? Do you think they're just not being offered them? And also just how do you, how do you feel about being part of that very exclusive club? I mean, I, you know, I, I feel mixed about it. Of course I feel honored and privileged and um, I love Stephen King so much. And it's, and it's also incredibly important to me to make sure that female artists are, are represented. Um, but mm-hmm. it also, it makes me sad and, and I can say from personal experience, both in terms of as a, you know, 
somebody who's who came here to direct and it took me 10 years of just writing and earning enough goodwill to have somebody trust me to direct um i can say it's a lot harder for women than it is for men to to get that shot i can also say not just personally speaking but uh, as somebody who produces things um it is it is incredibly difficult sometimes to get women hired on projects and mm. i'll have mm. i'll have a, another producer or another executive say that a woman that i put up for the job isn't qualified enough and i'm like guys this woman is more qualified than the men that you're looking at i don't know what you're right yeah um and I, I honestly don't even think most of the time it's people trying to be overtly sexist. I think it's so subconscious and just um, it, it's it's ingrained in our society in a way that mm-hmm. we're actively trying to shake. But it, it, it it's going to take time and it's hard to shake. But I think that that it's been such a banner year, maybe a couple of years for women in genre and women directing in, in general. And I'm hoping that with each the success story um that it becomes easier for women to get these jobs and to get these shots totally yeah here here well let's talk explicitly about some stephen king stuff namely i'd I'd like to get your stephen king origin story when did you first become aware of him like as this presence out there in pop culture I became aware of him around age nine. I mm-hmm. um, I was a big nerd. I loved hanging out in libra- like libraries. Mm-hmm. I had a local library that I would walk to all the time. And I saw this book on the shelf called Pet Cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> and I was falsely lured in by the notion of pets. And I started reading it and it was very different than I anticipated, but I was totally addicted to it. I like, I brought it home. I read it in a night. Um, That was my first Stephen King thing I had ever read or ever heard of. And then I subsequently um, not exactly stole, but I would say borrowed a copy of pet cemetery from the movie from a family friend and, Mm. and made my sister watch it with me. And, and she hated, it she thought it was too scary <laughs> and, right. uh, but it I, I mean from there i just started you know reading every stephen king thing and watching every stephen king thing that mm. uh, had been published or made in film to date that's interesting you're, uh, you're in good company in that both of us also started reading king at, a, at like a single digit age yeah um <laughs> I'm I'm curious though you you pick up Pet Cemetery at nine like were you already reading horror at that point or was this your first horror novel as well? I think it was my first horror novel. Um, I <laughs> what a way to start. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it's I, I can't remember reading a horror novel before. I I think I had read some kind of. I definitely read things like Little House on the Prairie or there's a where the red fern grows. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Oh, old, old yeller. (laughs) Um, I'm seeing a, I'm seeing a trend in your, in your taste in in books (laughs) here. Uh, Pets and tragedy. Uh, (laughs) You have to shoot a dog. That's, that's for, for Lindsay. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. That's my thing. Uh, no, I don't know why I love animals so much. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I, it really was my, I think it was my first horror thing that I read. And I, I mean, I had, I think, I mean, like, 
I think there were some Tim Burton things that are obviously more kind of like gothic horror light that Mm -hmm. I I watched as a kid that I loved, you know, like I loved anything Tim Burton, like the Batmans and Edward Scissorhands and all of that. But this was a a different level. It's really really interesting to me how so many, because we we asked this question to everybody who comes on the show and I'd say a good two thirds of the people who come on have a similar story where maybe they're 10 or 11, but usually it's like, Oh, I was in, you know, I was eight or nine or 10 when I picked up my first Stephen King book. And there's, there's something about how he writes where even when you're that young and you don't understand some of the the bigger words, maybe, and you definitely don't understand, like my first book was Cujo and there's a whole, you know, whole you know i don't know cheating subplot <laughs> yeah there's a whole adultery subplot you know about a dude you know revenge jizzing on on bed sheets or something and it's like you know i was eight or whatever reading that a lot of that went over my head but there's just something about how he writes that still draws you in and i'm i'm somebody who can bounce off of the written word real easy like i got so excited when i was a big stephen king reader i'm like you know what i'm gonna branch off i'm gonna read all the classics you know i picked up frankenstein and i couldn't make fucking heads or tails of it you know there's <laughs> it's like I, i'm not like okay well i'll do dracula i've seen all the universal monster movies i can do this and it was the same thing the language like fucking put me to sleep mm-hmm. i don't know what it is about stephen king and the way he writes but he, he he's a, has a way of writing that can hook hook uh you know adults and children alike you like i don't i don't know what it is i you know maybe there's some very smart english professor out there that can be like oh well this because he's using you know the vocabulary in x y and z fashion i have no idea i'm i'm way too dumb to figure that part out but um but yeah it is weird it is weird to me how how engaging uh king is especially with younger readers um and at least uh, from my generation i don't know if that's still true today but uh you know from no, I the think 80s that- kids and, and earlier i think were like just i don't know hooked into his work yeah um uh, like 90s kids here so i can say at least a generation later <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or a decade later that's still true um, I, I think that it, it's a lot of things. I mean, he certainly uses accessible language, but I think there, there's just, there's so much about a, a character's state of mind that he mm. includes in his writing that I think makes it very, uh, personal and accessible. And when I think about Pet Cemetery in particular, um, there's this absurdist inner monologue of, of Lewis's that, that runs, Lewis Creed, the the yeah. protagonist, mm-hmm. the father who who run that runs throughout the book, yeah. and it gives you so much insight into kind of the mind and thoughts of a father and and his daily pressures and and and, and then of course um, his his grief and his sorrow and and his ultimately uh, fated decision to bring his son back to life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for a kid like for me, I like I mean I loved listening on adults conversations Mm. it was it was such a a fascinating kind of window into an adult mind um and i think that was part of what i found addictive Mm. but i think he just you know he has a way of you know whether it's and i know we're going to talk about it a little later but he has this way of tackling whether it's coming of age and or or whether it's an adult story i think he understands and explores kind of the human condition and just daily life in his 
um, in, in any one of his stories. And, and that's what makes it feel relatable and timeless. You know, I think you can be telling Stephen King stories a hundred years from now and, and, and still relate to the basic themes. Absolutely. Which brings us to the main topic of um, this episode and the, the title you brought us, It. Kind of building off what you just said, I tend to think that It is going to be one of the ones he's ultimately remembered for, like mm-hmm. alongside The Stand and probably The Shining. I think it's probably those those are the three uh, big ones. When did you first read it? Why did you select this title? Um, I think it might have been my second or third thing I read after Pet Cemetery, and the the notion of killer clown I think was interesting, but it was mm-hmm. the ages of the protagonist. I think probably yeah. is what drew me to it. But I think the the coming of eight like after reading it, it's such a long book, um, and I I'm a fast reader, and and I usually uh, I, I would mostly read his books in a day i think that was one that took me two or three days johnny five over here just flipping (laughs) through pages i'm such a slow reader i'm so envious when i hear hear about that um but i i mean i love the coming of age nature and and then i think just the the notion of friendship and Mm -hmm. how facing their fears and and coming out the other side um allowed them to survive but also doing that together as these as these outcasts and these people who didn't really relate there's there's so much in there that i think is so relatable and so timeless whether it's the power of friendship or 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 the power of kind of facing your fear or the power of 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 the outcast and the other and um how sometimes those are the most valuable people in in society i think there's there's a lot there that i think resonates with so many people outside of just the the fun of a killer clown that takes many forms and torments you in a very personal way you know Mm. i I really liked that and of course it, it it's most uh, prevalent form is as Pennywise the clown, but as a malevolent force, it takes a lot of forms and such personalized forms to anybody that it torments. And so just by nature, it's a very character driven and personal driven story because the the evil is tormenting them in, in such personal ways. And mm. so to see the, those characters face very personal fears and antagonists and 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 then have to kind of team together i don't know there's a lot of wish fulfillment in that Mm -hmm. yeah i'm glad you brought this up because it tees up a question that we we tend to ask our guests whenever we're discussing it which is if you were to encounter pennywise the clown what form would it take to specifically frighten you studio notes And an exec with uh, with a uh, a son that has lots of opinions on, on the project they're working on. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting that you that you mentioned the 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 fact, and I never really considered this before, but it's it's right on. It's, it's that even the horror in in it, the horror set pieces, it's all based and rooted in character because you know the whole point of of you know getting to know a character is to know what they love and what they hate and what they what they're scared of and what they're you know what they're going for what they most desire in this world and and pennywise uses all of that to 
to fuck with people. You know, I was the, I was the, you know, obviously as the, uh, I related a lot to Ben. I was the fat kid and I was reading the book at about that age, you know, and had my unrequited crushes that, you know, you know, on the, on the pretty girl that weren't returned and like, you know, and yeah, it, it really is effective when Pennywise is using that against him, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. It, once again, finding new ways that Stephen King is smart while while talking about his shit on the show. Um, yeah. What uh, I, I have a question about the dual narrative of it. Yeah. That uh, that I love to run run by you. I mean, it's in the novel, the kid story and the adult story are more like a swirl cone. You know, they're more intertwined, uh, and in every adaptation, they've they've just completely split. That I guess in it chapter two they try to get a little bit of that flavor by like de-aging the kids and and weaving yeah. that story in a little bit, um, but for the most part it feels like that that square one when you're adapting it is to all right we're gonna tell the kids story totally separately and then the adult story is that something that you think is the best way to approach it or if you were say if you were in Andy Muschietti's shoes you know. Um, in doing the feature film version, would you have done more the integrated kids and adults thing at the same time? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I never want to comment on anybody else's work. I think Mm. that for Andy, that the, the version that he did, that's, that's Andy's version and that's great. I think, you know, that was his choice and that for him is what worked best. And and I I don't want to pick that apart or, or vice versa. I think if, I were doing it myself. Like if, you know, it's like, Oh, 2024, we're rebooting it. I a hundred percent would want to, um, do a movie that intercut between past and present because mm. I, I, I don't know. I, I think that there, there's so much that relies on when you're talking about a coming of age story and and the fulfillment of that that promise i think there's there's so much to be gained from having the setup and the payoff in the, in the same movie right and mm-hmm. i also think that um you know if if i were doing it if i were doing a a, a reboot i i feel like um I would probably put more of an emphasis on how they're, they're at a point in their lives where it's kind of a, um, a second coming of age and which I think we all relate to now as adults, you know, we don't just go through one adolescence. We have, right. we, we have periods of uh, exploration of what the fuck am I doing with my life? And, right. and, and, and am I the person that I thought I'd become when I was a kid? And I think that, that there, there would be more to explore in, in a movie like that, if, if I were at the helm, I would want to explore that. Cause I do think we really do kind of have at least two periods of adolescence now. Mm. That's very true. I hadn't really thought of that, but that's really true. And you see, <clears throat> you see that reflected a lot in like on social media, people constantly talking about like having imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, I think especially that's true amongst uh, anyone who's making a living creatively. You know, mm-hmm. and that covers a, a wide swath of, you know, various jobs you could be holding. But when you're making money creatively, um, th- it's very easy to slip into that imposter syndrome feeling. And that in and of itself is like a, a, a second adolescence, you know, questioning whether or not you have any fucking idea what you're doing <laughs> or should be in charge of what you're doing or it's uh, 
I hadn't I, I hadn't thought about it from that angle. So that's that's really yeah, interesting. I think that's really true. I also find that my friends who have kids, so much of their their kind of daily existence becomes about just supporting their kids financially, right. or emotionally, or and, and they kind of lose track of of what they wanted for themselves. And I, I just think there are a lot there are a lot of people where you just you, you have to take stock of of what you want for that second half or second two thirds of your life. Yes, folks, it's time for the mid-roll ad read brought to you this week by Judd Whiting's Rid of Red. Now available in paperback and ebook, Rid of Red is a new horror novel from award-nominated indie author Judd Whiting. Rid of Red follows Kira, a woman struggling to make peace with the burgeoning independence of her 15-year-old daughter, Lee, after some convincing. Kira reluctantly lets Lee go to a sleepaway camp where a nightmare unfolds. There's a shooting, and in the course of saving three of her friends' lives, Lee is killed. Devastated beyond words, Kira feels as though her life has ended with her daughters, until a terrible creature appears to Kira and offers her a gift. This creature can bring Kira's daughter back to her, can and will, but first it wants Kira to kill the three girls that Lee gave her life to save. Rid of Red by Judd Whiting is available now on Amazon or can be ordered at your favorite independent bookstore. Sounds cool, but I think it's time to get back to the the show at hand, the main topic as it were. What do you think? Agreed. Let's do it. All right, let's go. Eric, you got any questions? Oh, I mean, I I got so many. Um, I, I want to yeah. be no. It's true because this is my favorite story. This is the like. I, I, it definitely wasn't my first King, but it was early King for me, and it was definitely the longest novel that I'd, I'd read. Um, and you know, I, as you know, somebody, I was born in 81. So I was what, nine or 10, whenever the Tim Curry miniseries, mm-hmm. it, um, it, it's hard to, there's something about it that just hits the zeitgeist, at least in, in Western audiences. I, I don't know, like as much as like, I love, like I'm a huge dark tower nerd. I'm like, I'm a big fan of everything the King has done to, a, to some extent, but there's something about it that like just feels timeless. Um, there's something about it where, where it's adaptable into every generation, as we've seen with the Muschietti movies and, you know, the, you know, those being billion dollar fucking movies. It's when King himself, when he came on the show, one of the first things he said is like, when I'm dead and gone, you know, they'll remember that fucking clown, you know, it's like, there's something about this story that, that hits people. Um, and I think that, that, there's a, a combination of things, but I'd love, Lindsay, you know, for you to weigh in on why you think that it's it's so timely. And I think that we've already touched on maybe the main reason, um, uh, and that's the coming of age part of it, the, 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 the tween part of it, because it seems to me like that's a hook that gets every generation. Every generation can relate to it, even though I wasn't a 50s kid reading it. I was an 80s kid reading it. And I related to it. Now we have, you know, now this version is essentially my childhood, the newer versions. And then there can be a version in 20 years that'll be about, you know, kids growing up post 9-11. You know, that they, they could adapt this story into, like, any generation. Um, mm-hmm. it, um, do you think that that's part of the reason why it's it's so, it's so I don't know, beloved and, and so timeless and why it, it's going to be one of those stories that, just lives on forever or is it just because killer clowns are creepy and it's a really good easy horror imagery like i have no idea what the real answer is it's probably a combination of both of all no, that I, I think it's a combination of both and that it's that 
it's the perfect marriage of the coming of age aspect plus the the imagery of the killer clown is also the perfect metaphor for kind of child like fucked up childhood and and, right ruined innocence yeah yeah, ruined innocence child like childhood innocence perverted and 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 you combine those things and it just it feels just so relatable so visceral and 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 the the characters plus the theme plus the imagery all comes together in such a just a tied in a bow way. Are you afraid of clowns, Lindsay? <laughs> <laughs> um, afraid? No. Annoyed? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> clowns are like mimes to you. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Oh. You know what? I'll. Well, I don't know if that's true. I was gonna say I'll take a mime over a clown any day, but I, now I'm second guessing myself. Because at least a, a mime is quiet. Yes, I I think they tend to I, invade your personal space a little bit more, though. I don't know. A, a clown has like maybe a squirting flower or a horn oh. that it honks in your face, or right. You know, I think they're probably both. Maybe they're equally obnoxious, just in completely opposite ways. Yeah, I think we don't have to choose. I think we can say that they're tied. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- that brings up a point because there are no happy clowns anymore, right? I get Ronald McDonald maybe, but even that, like, it's the Golden Arches more. They kind of shuffled Ronald off into a corner now. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't think people, clowns aren't the go-to, let's bring the kids in uh, image anymore. No, certainly not. I haven't seen that used in a kind of sincere way. <laughs> in a real way. <laughs> Do y'all think it's possible that they sort of, you know, they didn't fully retire Ronald McDonald, but mm-hmm. I would I would say they like sort of sunset the concept of Ronald McDonald. Do uh-huh. you think it has anything to do with the enduring <laughs> popularity of it? Like yeah, the miniseries, the... the book, the movies, like if if the populace tends to associate a clown with Pennywise more than anything else. Wouldn't that sort of blow your beloved fast food mascot out of the water? It's probably the the right hook left hook combo of John Wayne Gacy and and uh, <laughs> Stephen King ruining clowns for the rest of us for for all time. Um, yeah, no, they, it, I I think that you could probably do like a, a real deal like uh, study on on. Uh, uh, clowns going out of favor <laughs> with uh, the rise of, of popularity of Stephen King's It. Because uh, you have the book to start, even though the clown imagery isn't on, like, you know, it's the weird, like, reptile fingers and stuff. It isn't on there. But, like, I think once it hits that, you get into that Tim Curry miniseries. Um, I, I just, the days of clowns, <laughs> clowns as happy things for children are gone, man. I just don't think they're coming back. <laughs> You said yeah. you find them annoying, but have you ever had an unpleasant interaction with a clown? Yes, many. Go <laughs> many. elaborate, please. Many. Okay. <laughs> I mean, well, no, I grew up a carny. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I I grew up in Utah, so lots of lots of um uh you know G-rated parties with uh with ponies and clowns, but um I I uh, I. I've never had a, an experience with the clown. I can say that I particularly enjoyed on the Ronald McDonald front though. I think there's just, um, 
you know, there's there's something a little bit weird about a grown man being the mascot <laughs> of like a, <laughs> a, of of the, the childhood playpen. So I think there's probably <laughs> quite a few reasons they phase that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've they've pivoted to grimace now, uh, yeah. which is uh, far more apparently far more palatable to to modern audiences than <laughs> Ronald McDonald. This vaguely. Yeah, butt plug shaped purple thing (laughs) that like we don't even understand what it is actually did you know that grimace is supposed to be a taste bud what no shit yes i read that somewhere but called grimace yes (laughs) did they think that through really you tell me i don't think they did like but at least that's very that's the most accurate advertising i've ever heard of mcdonald's Morgan Spurlock uh, over here. Yeah, we've we've touched on the um, Tommy Lee Wallace's miniseries a couple times, mm. but haven't really talked about it. Um, I assume you were too young to have watched that when it aired. If you were a so nineties kid, oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. Any particular reason why you just hadn't gotten around to it? I didn't know it existed. What? Yeah, I'd <laughs> literally never heard of it until, until when? Until this week. What? Yeah. That's Tim Curry. Oh, come on. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard Scott so offended on the show before. Look what you've done. The image of Tim Curry as Pennywise is like, I could show that to my dad and I think he would know what it was. Like, it's everywhere. Um, He was was alive when it aired. I don't know. uh Yeah, fair. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Fair enough. So... Um, well, I, I encourage you to see it, if if only as a, a comparison point to uh, no, the feature I'm film version. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it this weekend because now yeah. that I know it exists, I'm very I'm very intrigued. Well, yeah, if you like Tim Curry, you're in for a treat. I'll tell you that. I one. love Tim Curry. Um, oh, he kills it. I, lo- I loved Clue. I thought that was like. Amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Was yeah like- no, he 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 really goes for it uh, in in this, and it's such a great comparison point that Scott pointed out to the way Bill Skarsgård played Pennywise because it's you know he play Tim Curry plays it way more theatrical and his his outfits way more of like you know the probably what Stephen King had in mind while writing it more that Bozo the Clown kind of uh, kind of look, mm-hmm. uh, and you know it's it's definitely like a nineteen ninety you know, shot in Canada, you know, uh, made for TV movie. So, you know, it's not going to have the same production value, but it's got a great cast. Uh, you know, all, I think all the kids kill it. Seth green is, uh, is Richie Tozer and, and, um, Jonathan Brandis is stuttering bill. And yeah, I, there's, there's lots of, uh, and it's got a great adult cast, but the adult story is just not as interesting, which is, you know, which is kind of why I brought that up earlier is because, you know, maybe you do need to temper the adult storyline. There's something about having the kids as the hook that that just works better. I don't I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it's just a common touch point that everybody has. Everybody's had that friend group, even if it was like the one kid down the street. You know, it, yeah. you didn't have to have a whole losers club around you. But um, uh, but yeah, there's something about the kid story in particular that always seems to work in all these adaptations. And then when the filmmakers get to the adult story, that's where things tend to struggle. I, well, you know. I think that it feels like, I, well, that's another reason why if I were doing it, I wouldn't disconnect them because it just feels right. like, uh, 
it, it feels like you introduce one cast of characters that you fall in love with, and then you introduce these people who feel like strangers to each other then in, yeah. in a different installment. And not only do they feel like strangers to each other, they're in terms of looks, strangers to the audience. And they're also what they're going through. It doesn't feel like is enough of a mirror of what they went through before, at least right. emotionally. They're not struggling with the same problems. They've mostly kind of moved on from those problems. So in kind of all ways, they feel disconnected from mm-hmm. um, their their original characters and their right. original so that's why i think it's so important to to connect them in the same same film right it's a big ask for an audience to be like hey you just watched this whole first story and now we're going to introduce you to these characters again as adults and all but one have totally forgotten everything that happened which you just watched in the first story (laughs) and they they have to spend half the goddamn story figuring out you know catching up to where you're already at as an audience so maybe that that might be like one of the fatal uh parts of splitting those stories up i guess is that you're you're then asking the audience to sit and wait for the characters to get back on the same page that you are already yeah yeah no it's weird i mean it's always weird anyway i mean a like when you see i don't know if you have any kids in your life that are just kind of tangentially in your life and you see them like a year later and or two years later and suddenly they're totally different kids you don't yeah that shit is weird that yeah. it's weird it's weird it's off-putting or yeah. when like you know, their voice is totally different and they're like yeah. a foot taller and it feels it, like they're up to something when that <laughs> <laughs> like you got tricked somehow i don't like yeah. that yeah. yeah that happened to me with my my nephews over uh covid like my the older my older nephew rocco went from from like 12 to 13 so it was like le- legitimately that i saw him before lockdown and you know he was you know came up to my you know, my chest maybe, and, you know, little skinny, scrawny, you know, squeaky voice kid. And then, you know, I see him a year later and he's, he's almost, he's looking me in the eye and he's, you know, he's got a deep voice and, yes. fucking, you know, hair on his lip. And it's like, what the fuck yes. is going on? This sucks. Yes. You need to be a kid forever. <laughs> this sucks. So this sucks. It, 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 it's, it's, it's mortality. It, it, you're seeing, you know, you're, it makes you recognize your own mortality this is time passing you know at a certain point you kind of generally look the same in the mirror you know from day to day um uh but yeah when you see a kid go from you know a kid kid to like an adult person you know it's like fuck man time is passing i'm I'm dying i'm we're all dying what's going (laughs) on i have a friend that i hadn't talked to in like some years that i caught up with recently and he is he's got a daughter and was like, yeah, she's she's uh, 17 now. And I was like offended by this because the last time I had seen this kid, it was like a literal like toddler. And like I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. It felt like you're, you're absolutely right on the mortality front like that. I think that's why it's why it feels like such an affront. When that <laughs> it also just feels like, I don't know, like time is surreal or we're in some weird time illusion or it, it makes feel, things feel very odd to me. I also, I find myself like when something is as strange as being presented with a human who is a totally different version of a human, like it, it feels like you're in a weird sci-fi story, it, it, I, or at least for me. <laughs> I, I, 
I think, um, I know it's just a natural part of life, but it's very weird. It just makes me think about, about life and all the things we take just kind of for granted as accepted. Like we, we just grow and change and turn into these totally different versions of ourselves is really weird. If you're thinking about it from like an alien perspective, just watching humans like, Oh, okay, this is weird, Mm. but it's just, it's normal for us. We just accept it as part of life. When you were reading the book as a kid, were there yes. any parts that were too scary for you or that it, maybe say again of it? Specific? Yeah. Um, disturbing stuff in there. There was one scene in particular involving a dog in a refrigerator that when I read it, when I was a kid, um, I like, that's where I like put the book down for several days and walked away from it. Like, cause I was so, it upset me to to such a degree. And I'm wondering if if you had that experience with it at all. Um, there are certain things like the the beating of the when it like time jumps and there's like the intense beating of the guy. Um Adrian who, Mellon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, things like that that are more reality based and more kind of um shows you the darkness of human nature and the capacity for people to be so kind of hating and, mm-hmm. uh, um, and, and, and evil that, that stuff was really hard for me to stomach and still is mm-hmm. even just watching the film adaptations. You know, we went up to Bangor a couple of years ago and did a big, uh, live event up there. And part of that, it was like a weekend long thing. And, um, Part of that weekend was we did a tour with a bunch of the people that had like VIP passes to the the event. The company is called SK Tours. Shout out to them. Um, if you if you ever go to Bangor, look them up. Uh, the tour is incredible. But yeah, one of the most like haunting parts of that tour is well, it's twofold. One is that as you're driving through Bangor, it like it looks like dairy. Like to to be in that city. Um, feels like you've entered that town, like straight down to like some of the descriptions, the the buildings and the geography of the city itself, the street Um, names. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the killing of Adrian Mellon, uh, we learned on this thing was actually something that happened in Bangor down in in their canals. And it like rattled the city to such a degree um, that. It, like it just it scandalized the town and sent shockwaves through it and kind of put at the forefront of the conversation in that community the the idea of homophobia yeah. and King incorporated it into the into the novel. I was I don't know why I was surprised to hear that, but like I I didn't know it and it made that all the more horrific to me that this was like a yeah, thing that actually occurred. That that is really horrifying, and of course, it, it it's something that occurs throughout the world and in our nation, and, sure. and even still, and and that kind of stuff is really hard for me to stomach. But it's also incredibly important for us to confront, and it's another reason why this book and King in particular, I think, is his writing is important because it does it does force us to confront very real human experiences and human evils. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at his best, that's when he's the most effective. Not to to go back to Pet Cemetery, but that's you know, 
that's a real fear. His real fear of losing his kids is what, you know, spawned, spawned that, that, uh, that story yeah. in the first place. And there's something just, just, it just hits right because he's tapping into all of our, all of our fears, you know, uh, whether you can look at the shining and, and that's scary because everybody has had somebody in their life change as a person. Sometimes it's because of drugs. Sometimes it's alcohol. Sometimes, you know, it's mental illness. I mean, there, there's a million reasons why it can happen, but there's something just really terrifying about, you know, somebody that you know and love being different. You know, I mean, we, we were joking about, you know, kids growing up and stuff, and you know, but there's something that it, it taps into the same, that, that same feeling of, of like uh, uh, unease and, and something that should be a bedrock thing, not actually being as solid as you think it is. I mean, there's, you know, there's a reason why why King stuff is held up in a way that a lot of his you know contemporary uh, colleagues aren't. You know, there's something authentic about it. And even when he has a story about you know a bunch of kids facing off against a killer clown, um, you know, it, it it rings as true. You know, those kids. Um, you know, one thing that we talk about a lot when we discuss the story is how everybody sees themselves in at least one of the losers, right? You can feed there. There's always going to be person, uh, uh, maybe fragments of like, Oh, I'm a little bit of Richie. I'm a little bit of Eddie. I'm a little bit of this, but there's always going to be one, one person in particular that, uh, that you relate to. For me, it was Ben, um, uh, Scott, I think you said it was Richie, right? Yes. Uh, like Lindsay, did you feel that? Did you feel that there was like, like, oh, I see my, I'm a leader like Bill or I'm, you know, you know, or I'm, I'm a, you know, a, a hypochondriac like Eddie. Like, was there <laughs> one of the characters that you, that you really like gravitated towards uh, in, in the Losers Club or yeah. maybe even saw in, in, in your, your own friend circle? The for, for, for me, it was Bill and, and because I'm an oldest sibling and mm, right. I just, I really related to that responsibility you feel for right your younger siblings and kind of the, you had a younger the, brother dragged into a sewer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did not, but I did have a younger brother attacked viciously by a dog in front of me. Wow. Once, Jesus. Which, uh, which did help inspire the scene that I wrote for pet cemetery. But, wow. um, I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I think mostly Bill. It wasn't like I, I projected myself fully onto him or anything, but I would say right. of, of him, he, uh, my my family was always really important to me, and and clearly like that's the issue he's trying to work through right. is his own his own guilt and responsibility for for Georgie. So um, that to me was very relatable. If you were uh, able to, you know, um, pick another King title that you would to adapt, basically, what would it be? And it can be anything that's already been made. Like, assume that that doesn't matter. There's no red tape around it. You just wave a magic wand and you get to adapt one of his novels for the screen. It would probably be it. Really? Um, and I think, yeah. And and I would I would want to do it, as I said, where, you know, you combine the the adult and child storyline in the same movie. And I, and that to me would be the, the reason for it to exist is because that hasn't really been done before. So um, that, yeah, that would be the one I would want to tackle. I think. If you did do an it movie, what would your approach to Pennywise be? Um, because that seems to be, 
you know, like we talked about the Tim Curry version, which you're unaware of, is the uh, the Bozo, the clown version. They went kind of this like Victorian old entity feeling thing for the uh, Warner's movies. Like, what would your version of the clown look like? You know, uh, do you do you have that solidly in your mind? I, I mean, I <laughs> I definitely don't have it solidly in my mind. Right. It's not anything I've given thought to because I know that, you know, we've got two great recent installments of it. It's not like anybody's right. going to be dying to, to reboot it right. anytime soon. And by the way, I'm, so, I'm sorry to offend you about not having seen that. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not offended. I'm just not to, offended. Just to explain, my, my, my parents were in the indie film. I We mostly... <laughs> We mostly growing up did not watch movies or TV, so that's why I I read a lot of books, but I haven't mm. seen a lot of things until oh, I was until I was kind of old enough to right. um, you know uh, go to the movies myself. Um, but so I I have big holes that are kind of funny. Sure. <laughs> in, you said you grew point. up in Utah. The It miniseries may well have been illegal in Utah. For all we know. <laughs> it was outlawed. Yes, <laughs> but no, I mean I I think. I certainly would 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 veer from uh, any kind of incarnation of Pennywise that we've we've seen. Um, I think that there there are more modern version of of street clowns that I think are are pretty terrifying in their own right. Oh, that's um, street clowns. Yeah. Huh. Would you would you maybe one of the aspects of this story that that no adaptation has has tackled is the fact that Pennywise is revealed to be female at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that um, in the Kerry Fukunaga lead up to before Andy Muschietti came on, like he was looking at a bunch of people, including like Tilda Swinton and, and, you know, a more androgynous looking thing before he kind of settling on um, uh, a younger person playing Pennywise and not like an older person. Um, Is that something that you think would play into, into your, your thoughts on, on how, how the, the clown would look. I, I'm just trying to get a, a an image of like where could you go from here because we're gonna get more. I mean, we already have this Welcome to Dairy series coming out. You know, we're this thing is is going. I think in my lifetime I'll see another reincarnation of this the story at the very least. You know, another straight up remake. And I'm trying to figure out like what's the ground that hasn't been tackled yet. You know, with the story. No, that's a that's an interesting point, and uh, and I you know I think if I were doing it and and there was an aspect of that, I would probably just make her female from the start. I think that right. the the gender reveal or androgyny of it, I, I feel like might accident if might accidentally feel like a commentary you're not meaning to make, <laughs> right? On 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 androgyny or gender right, fluidity, right. Um, if it was more of a reveal aspect, but I think that that certainly um, making her a, a a female entity or even a I don't know I it, it's a, it's an interesting point. It just there there's so much complexity these days in terms of what people take away from your film that you're not sure. necessarily meaning to say. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I can already yes, see indeed. the think pieces now about about how Pennywise has gone woke now because because she she's a lady. It's like she she was always female. Yeah. Well, this is usually the point in the show where we turn uh turn it over to our guests for for self promo time. So um, tell people where they can uh, 
where they can obtain Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, uh, where they might be able to see it now, all that good stuff. Yes, absolutely. So uh, Pet Cemetery Bloodlines can be found on Paramount Plus, where when it debuted, it, it broke records at the time for, for viewership, was, which was amazing. So Congrats. thank you for everybody who yeah. tuned in and, and watched it on Paramount Plus. It's That's now- the King Pass bump, by the way. That, that just happened because we hosted the <laughs> Fantastic Fest premiere. Now, now. Exactly. Exactly. Just, just, let, so, I'm just letting you know. Just, just planting the flag. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> it's currently available on platforms like Amazon and Apple for digital download, and on December 19th, it will be available in um, hard media form, Blu-ray, 4K, all that good stuff, with a bunch of additional features um, in all the places you usually buy that stuff. Oh, so. Nice. You got commentaries up in there? Amazon, yep. All, all the good stuff. Nice. Nice. Yeah. A dying art form, the commentary attached to a movie. Miss <laughs> those. Love, love them. But well, thank you so much for, for being here. This was awesome. Uh, a, a real pleasure to talk to you again after the, the fantastic press premiere. And uh, we look forward to whatever you do next. Thank you so much for taking the time. You guys of are Of course. And thanks what you do for the kind of king and horror community. Well, well thank you for saying so. Many thanks to Lindsay Beer for joining us yes. uh, and uh, talking once again about one of my favorite stories. We we talk a little bit about how there are a few titles where we don't know after three and a half going on four years of doing this, we don't really have a lot to add f- from our perspectives. But I think it is one that I feel like we could uh, uh, probably go back to the well to a few few more times before all, all is said and done. It's just one of my all time favorites. And I, I love digging into that book. Yes, uh, always a lot of meat on those bones. Lots to uh, lots to dig into. And it was fun to hear some, uh, you know, behind the scenes stories from Lindsay on on the making of Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. Hell yeah. So, yeah, thanks to her for coming on for that. And uh, I think it's time to start teasing out what we got coming up. Do you want to start with a page? Let's start with the Patreon. What's on the Patreon this Friday? Scott? Uh, this Friday on the Patreon, we are releasing the fourth episode of Shelbyville season two. Um, this one is going to be of very great interest to um, fans of a certain non King horror property. Uh, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but this season of Shelbyville has incorporated more horror influences than just Stephen King. We've we've already had, a, you know, a, a, a summer camp slasher episode. That's the first one we've monkeyed around with, you know, um, extraterrestrial stuff, extraterrestrial yeah. stuff. Yeah. And Terminator style robot pursuers. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. Uh, the Dark Tower has has been brought into it as a. Mallory's crystal has become a, a gunslinger. Uh, this episode uh, brings another modern horror classic into the DNA of the show. And you will hear us as we're playing it, figuring out what our game master Jacob has unleashed on us. And we are so fucking excited when we uh, <laughs> when we finally figure out what it is. Uh, and I think a bunch of you are going to be excited as well. Yeah. So uh, to listen to that, go on over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Kingcast and sign up. 
all the Shelbyville stuff's in the uh, Gunslinger tier, the $10 a month tier. Uh, but that's our top tier. It gives you everything and including access to everything that we've done since we launched the Patreon, which Jesus, well over three years ago now. So we we have hundreds of hours of, of King Cash shit you probably have never heard if you've never signed up. So commentaries, interviews, bonus episodes, Shelbyville stuff. Uh, head on over if you've never never done it and throw us a little little uh, money and we'll make it worth your while. Absolutely, we will. And Tons then, of shit over there. Yeah, so much fun stuff. And, uh, you know, Discord and the whole community over there. It's, it's wonderful. Come join us. It's great. Uh, what better treat for, for Christmas? What better gift could you give yourself than than that of a sense of community of, of fellow Stephen King nerds? Um, Weirdly horny community. Yeah, by the way. Yeah, the Discord's <laughs> been getting pretty raunchy lately. Not like a, a creepy way, by the way. It's just like, oh, everybody's getting comfortable enough with each other to start talking yeah, about some very extremely sex positive. In that. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm very, pre- very proud of our listeners. Yeah, they're great. Uh, so this uh, next week, uh, I'm, we're back in a teasing mode. Uh, we are going to be sitting down allegedly at the end of this week with the star of one of our favorite Stephen King adaptations. I don't want to tip the hand on this one uh, just in case the schedule shift again and we can't deliver exactly on what we promised. Uh, but next week, uh, if all goes to plan, we will in the main feed be giving you an interview style uh, chat with the star of a great Stephen King adaptation. So yes, get excited uh, about this one. Yeah, it'll be really fun. I'm, I'm super psyched for it. And uh, I think you guys are going to lose your minds uh, when, when this gets locked in. And so uh, pay attention to, uh, I I hate to, to draw uh, eyeballs back to Twitter at this point in time, but we will be announcing uh, via our Kingcast Twitter. That's at Kingcast 19 on Monday. So should we uh, actually lock this in? You, you will be seeing the announcement there or via our discord. So yes. uh, If not, then just tune in next Wednesday and see, we'll see what's up. Uh, You'll be surprised either way. I'm I'm really excited for this one. Yes. Same. Awesome. All right. So we got that mystery chat with a Stephen King star uh, next week, hopefully. And uh, Shelbyville episode four this Friday on our Patreon. Yes, indeed. All right. See you then folks. See you. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>